I don't remember exactly how old I was. I may have been 12 or 13, uh, but I had done something bad, which was not an uncommon occurrence when I was that age. I had done something bad. It was during vacation from school. And so because of what I had done as a consequence, I was grounded. I don't remember for how long I was grounded, but it was a long time. The, the, the time frame that, that fits in my mind is three weeks or, or a month, something like that. So what did grounding mean in, in my day as a child? It, mean, it meant I couldn't do anything fun outside of the home. So I couldn't uh, go to a friend's house. I couldn't have a friend come over. I couldn't talk on the phone um, just for the fun of it. Uh, I was limited to staying at home as part of my punishment for whatever I had done. Now, remember also, and most of you remember those days, this is before smartphones, this is before um, internet, this is before computers, so those were not an option. And also, at that time, my family did not have even a TV. We didn't even have a TV, let alone a VCR or anything. So basically, it was me and books, which was okay, but even that, as a child, gets tiring. And I remember one morning, my, my parents said to me, that that day, Komevi, which is one of the ministries that we as a church support, Komevi, was moving. They were moving from their, their headquarters, which were at the time downtown, and they were moving into a new location over here in Campobello, where they are still today. And as part of that move, they were having a work day, or as we would say in Portuguese, a mutirão so that anyone who wanted to volunteer could, would go and help clean up the property, paint, and, and in other ways, help get it ready for Comevi to move in. And they said, would you like to go? Now, it, perspective is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because on any other day of my life, that wouldn't have seemed like such an attractive choice. But given that it would get me out of the house, that it would get me to go somewhere else, that I would get to see Carrie Anderson, one of my good friends, that even though we would be working, we would actually get to spend the day together. I was excited. Yes, absolutely. That was an easy choice to make. And there are some choices that are so obvious that they're not even really choices. Like, I mean, if you ask a five-year-old, would you rather have spinach or chocolate? You, you choose. A normal five-year-old is not going to have any difficulty making that choice. What about transportation? Let me ask you this. Would you rather fly in first class or would you rather travel in economy in the middle seat? Would you rather spend two hours at a concert of your favorite music or two hours at Detran waiting in line? It's your choice. Which would you prefer? Would you rather be relaxing at the beach or sitting in traffic on the marginal? Now, these options seem quite silly, don't they? The answer is so obvious that they don't really seem like decisions that need to be made. However, in, in life, children of God, and, and, and that applies to most of you, children of God are faced with decisions that seem just as obvious as these. And yet, we still struggle to make the right choice, to make the obvious choice. Today we'll complete our four-week four series on Psalm 86. In this final section, the psalmist David presents himself with a choice, one with an obvious right answer, 
Now, remember what has come before. David begins the psalm in desperation, struggling, begging the Lord for help. He's in a desperate situation. From there, he pauses. And in the second section, he looks up and out of his situation to gaze upon God. And he is impressed with God's uniqueness, with God's power, and with God's acts. You know, his, his deeds on behalf of his people. And flowing out of his reflection upon God himself, then in the third section, we see a change in his focus. And David becomes much more attuned to his relationship with the God of the universe than he does with the desperate situation he's encountering. And he affirms God's love for him. And he affirms his desire to have an undivided heart so that he could fear the Lord and the Lord alone. Now today, David kind of takes into account everything that's gone before in the psalm. And he's going to set up a choice for himself. And the, the, the obvious answer will be very, very clear. It's going to be a choice between faith in God on the one hand and panic, struggle, fear, and worry on the other. And I know that the right choice is obvious, but it's still not always an easy one to make. So let's, let's follow David as he presents this choice and then makes his choice and affirms his decision of faith. I'll just read for now the last section of Psalm 86, which begins with verse 14. The arrogant are attacking me, O God. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, men without regard for you. But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Give me a sign of your goodness that my enemies may see it and be put to shame. For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Finally, after most of the psalm has already gone, David gets around to stating the specific problem. We know he's in a desperate situation. We know he is in a day of trouble. But now he tells God straight out, and, he, and, and by extension, he tells us too. What's the problem? Arrogant people are attacking him. Ruthless men are trying to kill him. That's a serious issue. And as I said last week, I don't think that any of us are facing that kind of pressure. Maybe we are. Maybe there's someone listening um, over, over the internet, YouTube, Facebook, our website, and maybe this is your situation. If it is, then take heart because it's not the first time that one of God's children has been desperate like this. For the rest of us, I'm not discounting or minimizing the difficulty of your situation, but I'm saying, let's get it in perspective. I don't think most of you have people coming after you, hunting you down to kill you. But that's David's situation, and, and that's a desperate situation. He's living this, this pressure. And so finally he says it straight out, Here's a situation. This is why I'm desperate. Arrogant people are trying to kill me. But as soon as he states it, he counters it. And this is where he sets up the choice. Against the very bleak threat of these men chasing him, David counters with God. 
But you are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's as though he's placing both before him so that he can make an informed choice. Ruthless men trying to kill me? Compassionate and gracious God. The two are right there. And once we see that contrast so vividly, the decision is obvious. If you've ever played poker, you don't have to admit it to anyone, but um, if you're a poker player, you've heard the, the terminology, I'll raise you your, I'll see your bet and I'll raise you 10 more, or I'll, I'll see your $10 and I'll raise you 20. And, and that's kind of what David is doing. He's like, okay, I'll see, your, I'll see you, your ruthless men, and I'll raise you a compassionate and gracious God. Let's look at that contrast closely for a moment. On the one hand, what do we have? Men, people, humans, mortals. What do we have on the other side? God, the almighty God of the universe. What are the men like? They are arrogant and ruthless. What is God like? Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's as though David steps back and says, okay, which one am I going to choose? Which am I going to go for? And maybe that same choice is presented to us in our situation as we look at our situation on one hand and a compassionate and gracious God on the other. It's not actually so much about which one we choose. It's not so much whether David's going to choose ruthless men or choose God. The question is, is he going to choose the fear, the anxiety, and the terror of trying to have some sort of control over his situation? So in other words, allowing the ruthless men to dictate reality. Or will he choose the quietness, rest, and peace of faith and trust in God, allowing the Almighty God to dictate his reality? Friends, this is a challenge to all of us. To anyone who believes in Jesus, who through repentance and faith has become a child of God, each problem we face should be placed face-to-face with the character and power of God. We should pause. I think this would be a good practice. And actually imagine, engage our minds to imagine the problem facing a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And as we gaze upon these two options, though God is never just an option, I want to be clear about that, which will we choose? The fear, despair, oppression, and anxiety of the issue or trust in the God of compassion. David's choice is clear. In this entire psalm, throughout his entire prayer, he actually talks about the situation itself in only one verse. I've I've said this before. The only time he actually mentions it is here, and it's brief. He mentions the problem. He puts that problem to the God test, and that's the last time he mentions it. After the God test, his requests show submission and faith because they leave the resolution in God's hands. In this case, David doesn't tell God how to resolve the problem. There are other Psalms in which he does. Okay, There are other times where David does make specific requests to God for how he would like God to deal with the issue. In this Psalm, he doesn't. 
He simply acknowledges his need for God to act. David makes five requests of God. So after David makes his choice, anxiety, fear of the men, or rest and peace in the compassionate God, after he makes that choice, he follows it up with five very short requests. And he asks God to do five things. And once again, I don't want to belabor this, but he uses what we call that chiastic structure, the pairing. Why? To try to focus on the central request, the main one. So very briefly, I'm not going to look at all of these requests because they're fairly repetitive, but I do want us to get to that center one and focus on it because that's where the psalmist draws our attention and it's where we see the greatest evidence of David's faith. So quickly, here are the five requests or the five prayers. Turn to me, have mercy on me, grant me strength, save me, give me a sign of your goodness. Okay, those are the five requests. Turn to me, have mercy on me, grant me strength, save me, give me a sign of your goodness. They line up like that. Here are how these requests pair up in that chiasm. Turn to me, give me a sign of your goodness, right? The first and the last one. And they reflect each other. We can see the relationship between those two requests. A turning to and a giving a sign of goodness. Both reflect the attention of God toward David. The second pairing is, have mercy on me, save me. And again, a clear correspondence and similarity within the pair. Which brings us to the central request to which our attention is drawn and which stands alone without a pair. Right there in the middle, grant your strength to your servant. By asking this, David acknowledges that God's will may not be to vaporize the men who are chasing him, even though that might be David's deepest desire. God's will may not be to make the problem simply disappear, though of course this is what all of us want. If we're facing a difficult situation, we want that situation to go away. But now David is in submission to God's timing and God's will because any option as it relates to these evil men will require strength. I want us to think about that for a moment. That's the central request, right? Because no matter what God does, it's going to, David will need God's strength. So what are David's options? What are the ways God could lead him in response to this crying out for help? Okay, let's just imagine for a moment. One would be turn around encounter and fight these men. Literally, a physical battle with these men. Would he need God's strength for that? Yes, he would. Another option might be what seems to be what David is already doing, which is what? Fleeing for his life, running away. Would this require strength? Absolutely. Some of you have had an opportunity to travel to Israel and you've seen some of the terrain in which David was hiding out. And you know, running, fleeing, living in hiding requires strength. But what about this? What if God were to ask him to stand and wait? 
to simply trust God to deal with the problem without David taking any direct action, would that require strength? Oh, yes. I think we can all relate to that. In fact, this, this might require the most strength to simply wait on the Lord without trying to take things into our own hands. And that is hard. Divine strength is needed to stand and wait in faith for God to answer. And Scripture has examples of people who were given strength to respond in each of these ways as God required of them. David himself, he went out to fight Goliath, right? So he needed what? The, the physical strength, the mental strength, the emotional strength to go out there and fight. Um, we also know that at other times, David did flee for his life. He spent years fleeing for his life from King Saul. And he needed strength for that. We read in the Psalms about times that he was just worn out physically. He was exhausted emotionally. Why? Because he was living under this constant pressure. He needed strength. God's strength, divine strength. And do you remember the story of King Jehoshaphat? when they're being threatened, the people of, of Judah are being threatened by this massive army. And what does God say to them? Don't fight. Don't fight. I want you to march out, but I want you to put the choir up in front and just have them sing. So I don't know how you worship leaders would feel about that, you know? It's like, get your guitar, you know, get your drums, tie it around, you know, your cymbals, and you guys go out in front um, and you just sing, you know, and the warriors, the, 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 the guys with the weapons, will stay back here and watch. But that's, that's what God told Jehoshaphat to do. And I've often thought that required so much strength. Strength of what? Strength of faith. Because the action itself makes no sense. The action of a threatening army requires a, a battle. It requires a war. It requires warriors and soldiers, not musicians. So as David prays to the Lord, he doesn't say, God, wipe out these men. Kill their families. Make them suffer. Make the ground open up and swallow them. He says, God, I've seen who you are. Give me your strength for whatever will come. Give me your strength. And this brings us to the very end of the psalm. I want to contrast the first statement of this psalm with the final statement. The first statement, Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. The last statement, For you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. What a change. Let's take a closer look at that final statement. In the Hebrew, the tense of verbs, these verbs specifically, have helped and have comforted, it's the perfect tense. Now, I'm going to try to explain what that means. Hebrew does not function in the same way that English or Portuguese functions. So the verb tenses have less to do with when something occurred than with the kind of action it is. So in English or Portuguese, the tenses have to do with timing, right? Past, present, or future. 
when did this action happen or when will it happen? But in Hebrew, the emphasis is on the kind of action. The difference is subtle, but in Hebrew, the focus is not on the fact that these actions happened in the past, but that they are completed actions. So they are actions that are already completed, they're already done, but they have ongoing effects. That's the Hebrew perfect tense. Actually, in Hebrew, we don't even talk about tenses. We talk about aspect because it's different. So the aspect of these verbs is it's a perfect aspect, meaning it's a completed action with ongoing effects. Now think about what this means. For David to affirm these verbs as completed actions. God has helped and God has comforted. I know the way that we think, we, we have to think of these as happening in the past because that's how our language works. So God has already comforted me. God has already helped me. But David is still in this desperate situation. He's just told us ruthless men are still trying to kill him. But with this statement, he first of all affirms that God's help comes not only through the solving of the problem. That's not the only way that God ministers his help. It's not the only way that God ministers his comfort. Some of you may be familiar with the song. I don't remember the title of it. I think it's called The Storm, but it's by Casting Crowns. And uh, there's a line in that, in that song that says, is speaking of Jesus, and it says, sometimes he calms the storm, and other times he calms his child. And this is true. God's comfort and God's help do not always come by solving the problem. Or maybe that's not the way they first come. Now, the second affirmation David makes, though, with this statement, it's one of faith. The problem has not been addressed, but David, in faith, affirms God's completed action of help. That's faith. That's confidence and trust in the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. I have presented my request to him. I have gazed upon who he is and his character and his sovereignty, his authority, his uniqueness, his deeds and his acts. And I'm confident that the help and the comfort have been given. I may not have experienced them yet, but they're a completed action. They're a given because of who God is. God's presence and character are enough to quiet David's desperation. And faith in God is enough to give him peace. So brothers and sisters, how do we pray like this? Every challenge we face, every problem that arises that comes up in our way, everything that causes us fear and anxiety, we should weigh before our compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, as I said at the beginning, that seems an obvious choice, but it still remains a choice. Why? We must choose to ask for God's strength, accepting his timing and his sovereignty. And the temptation is for us to live and dwell in the desperation to allow the fear and the anxiety and the worry to be the focus of our hearts. And why do we do that? It's because it gives us the illusion of control. 
we think that, subconsciously usually, we think that if, if we are anxious, if we're worrying, if we're desperate, if we're struggling, that we, have, we can exert some sort of control over the outcome or over the situation. Or we can consistently lay our requests and needs before God, choosing to meditate on his being rather than our primary focus turned upon the problem. Last week, I awakened early in the morning, and I was feeling quite anxious about several different things. So I got up even before my alarm went off, and I went out to have my quiet time. And I thought, well, you know, maybe it would be a good thing this morning to do what I'm preaching about, right? Maybe I should actually practice what I preach. That would be a good thing to do, right? So I'm going to, in my, my first reaction, my first response normally would be to what? Pray and start asking God for help and even asking him to calm the anxiety, calm the worry, and ask, ask, ask. And it's not wrong to do that. But I said, wait, nope. I've just been sharing with my brothers and sisters at Calvary the, the focus upon the character and meditation upon who God is. So I'm going to do that. So I, I got out my journal. I didn't ask God for anything. And I just started writing down things about who God is. Like David did. I used some of his words but I use some of my own as well. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that this is like a magic charm. So you do this and everything is hunky-dory, everything is fine. But as I continued to do this, without me intentionally choosing it, my focus switched. It really did. It was more on who God is and much less on the anxiety of the problem. And that's where the choice comes in. You know, when Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, I've shared with you before that that kind of makes me angry. It's like, oh, okay, I'll just stop being anxious. He's not just saying that we control our feelings or control our anxiety, but we can control our focus. We can make a choice about where we will, we will put our thoughts and where we will put our meditation, where we will allow that to go. I... As I was preparing this, there was an Old Testament, another Old Testament story that came to my mind that I think illustrates this principle. Um, you remember when the children of Israel had rebelled against Moses and against God in the desert, something they did with regularity. And the penalty was that God sent a plague of snakes among them. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of snakes that were biting people and tens of thousands of people died. They were dying, 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 dying. And what did God tell Moses to do? Moses cried out to God, the people cried out to God, and God told Moses to do something really strange, right? He said, make a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole and lift it up. And anyone who looks up to that bronze serpent will be saved. If they've been bitten by the snakes, they'll be healed if they, and, and they won't die. Like, what an incredible promise. But what a counterintuitive measure to take. So if I'm, if I'm a, 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 you know, one of those Israelites, what am I thinking? The last thing that I should do is look up. Because where is the threat? The threat's down here. I need to be looking down here and trying to avoid these snakes. If, I, if my attention goes somewhere else, that's when I'm going to be vulnerable. 
So I've got to look down here. I don't know if I've got a stick. I don't know if I'm standing on an ancient Near Eastern chair in an ancient Near Eastern tent kitchen, but I'm doing, I've got to look down and protect myself. Whereas God says, counterintuitively, look up and out of the problem and look to me, because that serpent represents Christ, not, <laughs> I know that gets confusing in our imagery when we're used to serpents being, um, being a, a type of, of Satan, but um, because in the New Testament, God says, just Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so when the son of so will the Son of Man be lifted up, and will draw all men unto Himself. So, the point is, it's counterintuitive for us to look up and out of our desperation to look toward God. But that is where the help and the comfort are ministered. As long as we are trying to, as long as our primary focus is the desperation of our situation, we will not, we will not be changed. And we won't receive that comfort and help. Um, however it may come. And we're going to go crazy trying to protect ourselves in a situation in which we are unprotectable, <laughs> in trying to control a situation over which we have no control. God calls his children, along with David, to look up and out of our desperation, to gaze upon him, to meditate on who he is and how much he loves us. In these desperate times, put the desperate situation face to face with God and choose to look up in faith and trust that he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. One of the ways now that we are going to look up together is by celebrating communion. It's a moment where we pause, even in the midst of our desperation, even in the middle of a service, we pause and we draw our focus to the compassion and the grace of God. Clearly, clearly shown for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as, as we enter into this communion, this time of looking up and out of ourselves and our situation to receive from God what we need, let's prepare our hearts there's any unconfessed sin in you that needs to be dealt with, this is an opportunity. This is the time that you should confess that, repent of it, and receive the forgiveness of the Lord so that we celebrate communion with a clear conscience and a light heart.